Hey, this is Zac Efron, and you're listening to The Stupid Cancer Show. I hate you both. I've hated you ever since I can remember. I hate you, and I wish you both had cancer. Cancer? Yes, in the head. <gasps> I'm as tired as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore. You built a time machine? Kind of a DeLorean? This is the Stupid Cancer Show. Uh oh. Sounds like somebody's got a case of the Mondays. <laughs> Welcome to the Season 12 broadcast premiere and 250th episode of the Stupid Cancer Show, the voice of young adult cancer. My name is Matthew Zachary, and I am a 17-year young adult survivor of brain cancer. And my name is Annie Goodman, journalist and young adult breast cancer survivor, and we're your hosts for the Stupid Cancer Cancer Show. It's just okay. Everyone fails the first time. (laughs) It's not okay that 72,000 young adults are diagnosed with cancer each and every year, so... Got cancer under 40? Sucks, huh? Time to get busy living, folks, because the stupid cancer show is changing the world, one chemo infusion at a time. Join us as we welcome Sarah Watson, co-executive producer of NBC's Parenthood, and Sandra DeCastro-Buffington, director of Hollywood Health and Society, a program at the USC Annenberg Norman Lear Center that provides entertainment industry professionals with accurate and timely information for health storylines, authenticity in film and television. And our survivor spotlight tonight is Suleika Jawad, young adult survivor of acute myeloid leukemia and author of the New York Times well blog column, Life Interrupted. The Stupid Cancer Show is a production of Stupid Cancer, a nonprofit organization that empowers young adults affected by cancer, online at stupidcancer.org. And a Stupid Cancer welcome to any and all of our first-time listeners here on the Blog Talk Radio Network and on iTunes as we welcome you live from the Chemo Deck, our fabulous studio in downtown Manhattan. And with that, our self-ingratiating applause and a official hello to Andy Goodman, Hi. my brand new official co-host yes. on the Stupid Cancer Show. It's official. I'm very excited. Yes. And Uncle Kenny. Hello. Hi, sir. Your, your former official. Former uh, official. Uh, interim. Interim. Temporary. <laughs> interim ginger. You were the subdermal inflation balloon. Ginger. Spanning the skin. I was the. I, I <laughs> fell off the fiscal cliff <laughs> of the Stupid Cancer Show. And Maureen Sweet. Good evening, my dear. Hello. How are, How are you? you? I'm great. We got the, uh, almost the whole staff here. And Allie Ward's here in spirit. Allie you know, Ward from the, from the Lazy it, Boy. It, from, yeah, in, <laughs> from the Lazy Boy and in the chat room. And Maddie Beckett, our fabulous intern, and my dad, Luke Greenswig, in the house tonight. And uh, Suleika is actually here in studio. Hello. Hi, guys. How I'm you doing? Excited to be here. No, this is very cool. Very cool. You're not allowed to talk anymore. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> wow. 
guess she'd be spoken to. What is it? Wah, wah, speak wah. when spoken to. Yeah. Right, exactly. <laughs> all right, well, very cool. All right, well, Happy New Year. Happy first New Year. First of all, Happy New Year. Happy New Year. And uh, Happy Not Mayan Apocalypse Earth Destruction. We survived somehow. It was good. Mm-hmm. It was good. I think they were wrong. I'm not sure. I'm no? Not sure they were right, but something didn't happen in their favor. Yeah. Okay. Like, like a Monopoly bank error. Precisely. Exactly. Yeah. So, Kenny, what did you do besides shave your beard and then grow it back? Um, <laughs> I shaved my beard and I grew it back, actually. Okay. Funny. Um, twice. Uh, I don't know, Matthew. I've been, we've, we've been doing a lot behind the scenes, I would say. Well, infrastructurally, we have a lot to talk about, you know, about. It's, it's, a, it's a nerdgasm. It's a nerdgasm. Total nerdgasm. <laughs> but, you know, you, you, uh, didn't you go away? To Pennsylvania? I did, all the way to Pennsylvania. Yeah, it's a big trip. All uh, two and a half hours. <laughs> that was somehow seven hours on the way home. Right, exactly. <laughs> exactly. It just works that way around the holidays. And, Maureen, how was Astoria? Uh, I wasn't Astoria. I went to Ohio. Oh, that's right. One you, state you... further than Pennsylvania. She okay. <laughs> okay, she actually went somewhere. I did go somewhere. Right, I went that... to my to my hometown in Warren, Ohio. Wonderful. Ohio represent. So good. it was good. Loved it. Good stuff. And, Annie, what did you do? I was here. I just went out in the East Village. You were here in this room? I wasn't. I was on the East Coast. Because the door was locked. That must have been like that movie Hannah or something. <laughs> yeah, I stayed local, fought with some cab drivers over fares, and that was pretty much it. Okay, well, your hair looks fantastic. Thanks. Right. Yeah, it's growing. I yeah. got I got an official real haircut. I was reunited with my hairdresser. <laughs> the last time I saw her was when she shaved my head. That's you, fantastic. You should compete, your head versus my beard. <laughs> ultimate, ultimate follicle yeah. domination. But <laughs> it was an awesome reuniting experience because we're really close. I've been going there for years, so it was really hard to say goodbye to my hairdresser for a year. I'm almost sure. Almost a year. So. I'm sure. The little things that you don't really think yeah. about. Yeah. I know. It's so weird. When you think when you're diagnosed, you have to tell people. I was like, I need to tell my hairdresser because she's going to think I've, like, abandoned her and gone to someone else. Right, right. And I love her so much. I didn't want her to think that at all, so I told her. And, uh, yeah. But it was very lovely. We had a hug, and she didn't charge me. I remember my first haircut when my hair grew back. Mm-hmm. I remember it was really interesting because uh, the woman that had been cutting my hair, like I, you know, stand in the mall, like I just, I'm low key. Yes, a woman at the mall cut my hair for like 20 <laughs> years, and her name was um, Jamie or something like that. And and, and uh, I I remember specifically going to the mall to tell her I was going to lose my hair just so she didn't feel abandoned. Exactly yeah. what you were saying. It's very funny. That's very funny. And then I came back and I was like, I have enough hair to get a cut again. So Yeah, I texted her. Her and I are Facebook friends. And okay. She was like, she kind of knew it was coming, but I was like, I have enough hair. I need a haircut. When right. are you coming back from vacation after New Year's? Right. And uh, it was really good to see her. So, Kenny, what else we got to chat about? You, you took all these amazing notes about stuff we need to discuss. <clears throat> well, Matthew. Yes, Kenny. <laughs> it's nice to see you here. Oh, it's Monday a pleasure. Uh, our new website. That's right. We officially, after almost a year yeah. of development... After a year of, of a screenshot of these are the new colors I want to use, yeah. <laughs> which is the first step of every website. Well, we should put in perspective that, you know, we do the website in-house here, you and I. Yes. So a year is really like would take a normal person right. about it, three non- months. It's non-profit time. Non-profit, yeah, like dog years. Correct. So it, it actually would have been about six weeks to two months to get it done, but we did it in a year. Plus our jobs. Which is pretty good for non-profit time. Not pretty. Not which, is, pre- which is molasses standard time. <laughs> exactly, exactly. So, um, stupidcancer.org. It is. That's it. It's gorgeous. Everyone's happy. Everyone likes it. I2Y. Well, I'm too young for this .org is out the window. I2Y.com is out the window. Steps for living. So, well, yes. And now, and now stupidcancer.com is gone. Is gone. And everything lives on stupidcancer.org. 
which is how it probably should have been for a while now, right. but it is now. Right, but it's just so cathartic to have everything where it should have been five years ago, here now, today. Yes. It's good. It's it looks phenomenal. good. It's easy to read. Oh, it, it was totally. designed and developed by Some, direct Someone feedback. really smart. Mm-hmm. Well, I designed it, but <laughs> it, was, it was built. The user experience and the navigation was all built based on direct feedback from actual human beings that were not me, which is good because I tend to make things way too complicated. It looks amazing. Yeah, and the forums, the Stupidkins forums were relaunched, yes. nice pretty yes. colors. Yes, the, the Stupid Hodgkins forums, which is our sub subsection of right. the, the overall forums. You've done good, kid. Likewise, we should go out to drink tonight. <laughs> I think we should go. Well, it is. It, this is a cause for celebration because it is the 250th episode of the Stupid Cancer Show, May 27, 2007. I'm glad you're not in your pajamas anymore. No, I was literally in my pajamas in my second bedroom <laughs> in my house in Brooklyn. With your Homer Simpson. And Jess was sleeping in the bedroom. <laughs> I was trying to keep the noise down. <laughs> what did you have, Homer Simpson? Uh... I had Homer Simpson, uh, like, like night slippers. Yes. Yes. <laughs> They're very comfortable. Uh, as I would expect Homer <laughs> yeah. Simpson to be in his paternal way. The funny part about it is, like, you stepped into his mouth. That was when your foot went into his mouth. <laughs> Awkward. Because <laughs> they're looking up at you from yeah. the floor. Anyway, I digress. But, yeah, it has been amazing. I remember the first show. My guest was, uh, her name is uh, Laura Higgins. Laura Higgins is a leukemia survivor who uh, was a concert pianist. I, I'm sorry, a, a um, like an Enya-esque or like a rock star pop-esh new age. When I think Enya, I think rock star. No, she had a voice like Enya. <laughs> she had like a beautiful, I mean, she's Jewish, but she had a beautiful like Irish kind of voice. Enya is known for trashing hotel rooms. Okay, not Laura. And doing hard drugs. But Laura is yep. still a good friend of mine and my wife's, and uh, she also, I think she adopted a baby because she was infertile, and uh, she was, I asked her, like, I'm doing this radio show. She's like, what, what, what? And I said, yeah, please just. Just come to my basement. <laughs> <laughs> no, she actually called in. Like back when it was like it was all internet. There was no actual phone line back then. It was all through the web. And I like we you were so hinged on the quality of Time Warner cable <laughs> for it to actually work. And it had a USB microphone. It's called the Blue Snowball. And it just wore. It's actually it's still in my house. It was forward thinkingly backward. It was, and it just took off. And the funny thing was, it was right at the launch of the Livestrong Young Adult Alliance which is a uh, conglomeration of lots of young adult organizations. And a lot of the people that I had been meeting in 2006, 2009, they were excited that Matt had a radio show so I could promote them. I was just a wee junior in college. Yeah, I didn't even know who you were. Nope. Nope. You were... I, I didn't know that I would know you. Yeah. You were, like, doing keg stand somewhere. And <laughs> <laughs> Houses. Yeah, yeah. And, and doing pharmacy tech yep. at CVS or something. Something like that. Yeah, so that's what it started. It started at eight, from 8 to 9. On Monday, May 27th, May 27th, 28th, forget the day, 19, uh, 2007. Yeah. Fascinating. Amazing. And, and here, here we are. We're still here. It's pretty amazing. Wow. So, in, well, in other news. What's in other news? Our, our, uh, as your father pointed out, a, a website, no website, a T-shirt that closely resembles a famous liquor bottle. Yes. Our, our new Prohibition T-shirt. It was a real test of my HuffPo piece called Love Your Haters. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but you know what? This is the way it is, and people need to get over themselves. And everyone well, you, loves you it. Didn't, you didn't mention what the hating was. Oh, well, the it looks like the Jack Daniels logo, but it was designed by a lung cancer survivor. So everyone can go, go screw themselves. Like, a lung cancer survivor designed this wonderful 
Jack Daniels style logo. It says, stupid cancer, get busy living, fight cancer responsibly. It's phenomenal. As opposed to drink responsibly, you fight cancer responsibly. And there's a website called fightcancerresponsibly.org. With a picture of the, t- the t-shirt With a picture on. of the t-shirt on this. You can check it out. And... It's funny, and the haters is like like one point oh oh one percent of the world, but they yeah. get the most attention. We should give them free admission to OMG. We should, we which should. is which is gaining momentum. Yeah, the OMG summit. So yeah, so it's a beautiful like dark blue, right? I'm colorblind. It's blueish. Yeah, navy. Navy. Okay, thank you. It's one of the colors. Are you really colorblind? Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Sort of colorblind. I'm like mostly colorblind. Okay. I can still see Selectively it. colorblind. <laughs> <laughs> it's like when my grandma says like, you know, she's not deaf. And then you're like, hey. And she's like, what? <laughs> well, my father, to quote him, he has one of the best quotes in history. He's like, I didn't know I was supposed to be listening. <laughs> That's my dad, too. <laughs> there you go. So that, that, that is in perpetuity. That's like tombstone material. That's good stuff. That's going on my tombstone, too. Uh, how, I didn't know how, I was supposed how, to be listening. Pleasant. Yes. <laughs> well, let's talk Gravestone Talk with and, Matthew Zachary on the Midnight, midnight Shift. Okay. Love it. All right. Well, anyway. let's get to our guest. Okay. So I'm thrilled to have her here, and let's cue up some cool music for her. Okay. I claim responsibility as her first cancer date. <laughs> the first human being to see her while she was still in the uh, isolation ward uh, from the young adult advocacy space. Anyway, Suleika Jawad writes the weekly New York Times column, Life Interrupted, chronicling her experiences as a young woman with cancer. She has been featured in Glamour. The NBC Weekend's Today Show, NPR's Talk of the Nation, All Things Considered. She's been all over the place. She's, she's Johnny Cash. Um, and a video series that accompanies her Life Interrupted column was recently nominated for DuPont Award. You can paint. I assume if you win, they'll come and paint your walls. Okay. Uh, triple citizen of the U.S., Switzerland, and Tunisia. She graduated with the highest of honors from Princeton in 2010. And at the age of 22, as a result of being so intelligent, she was diagnosed with myodysplastic syndrome and acute myeloid leukemia. Congratulations. So after almost two years of chemo and a bone marrow transplant this past April, she is in, still in treatment and continue, continuing to discover what it means to live life interrupted. Please welcome Suleika Jawad, my friend and yours. Awesome. Hello. Thank you. That's quite the resume of your video. Well, I stole this from Denise, Denise Rich's website. So thank you, Denise, for writing the bio for me. So another one of the organizations you've been affiliated with. You, you become a real rock star. It's been exciting to discover this whole new world of young adult cancer. Um, when I was first diagnosed two years ago at age 22, I felt incredibly isolated. And it's been just amazing um, to discover organizations like Stupid Cancer that offer so many resources to people like me and um, help us connect to a community of like-minded people who are going through similar adventures and misadventures. Wow, you are hired. That's good, that's good stuff right there. <laughs> I guess my first question to you is, I mean, we want to get into the how and why and all the stuff there, but the, the sort of the powdered celebrity that you've achieved in a very short period of time, uh, w- was that something that that took you completely by surprise? To be honest, when I first started writing, I, the reason I first started writing my column is because I was looking for a voice in the media that I could relate to. Um, I was reading a lot of books by survivors for five or ten years out of their cancers, um, but what I really wanted to know was 
you know, what is it like to be in isolation? What does the hospital smell like? What is it like to have chemo? Um, so I decided to put pen to paper and to start reporting from the trenches, so to speak. And um, my very first column in the New York Times was published during my first week in the bone marrow transplant unit. And I still remember you know, there's a guy who walks around the floor in the morning and says, you know, Wall Street Journal, New York Times. And I asked for a New York Times, and it was this incredibly empowering experience. It was the first time I ever saw my name in print. Um, but what I didn't know is that in addition to being published for the first time, I was about uh, to uncover this incredible, thriving community of cancer patients and survivors, thrivers, whatever you want to call them. Um, and I have to say that the highlight of every week has been reading the comment section and hearing from other young adult cancer survivors um, and really getting to hear their stories and realizing that my story is not unique in a lot of ways. In fact, um, the themes that I dealt with, social isolation, infertility, um, awkwardness, difficulty communicating what I was going through uh, were incredibly universal. So, all right, so before I get to the nitty-gritty with Annie, how did you just suddenly start writing for the New York Times? I've always wanted to be a writer. Um, when I graduated college in 2010, I had dreams of being a foreign correspondent. Um, I wanted to travel to the Middle East and to report on the revolutions taking place there. Um, when I got diagnosed with cancer, my life felt very much interrupted. Um, and I couldn't imagine what I could possibly do from the confines of my childhood bedroom in upstate New York or um, from my hospital room in the adult oncology ward. And it took me a long time to realize that although I couldn't work in an office from 9 to 5, although I couldn't necessarily socialize or have my old life back, I could still be me. And I was able to kind of rediscover myself um, by, by writing and by trying to express these feelings that felt, you know, so impossible to put into words. Um, and what I did was I, I started a blog, secretsofcancerhood.com, on WordPress. Um, it was my first time writing for a public audience of any kind, and I was really shocked when the blog took off. Um, and about three weeks later, I was contacted by Tara Parker Pope, who's the editor of the Well blog on New York Times, and she asked me if I would be interested in sharing my story with a larger audience. And of course, I was thrilled. This was my big break, not the break that I ever imagined right. I would have. <laughs> and all you had to do to get the break was, yeah. Right. Um, so now I find myself reporting on a different kind of revolution. Um, and it's been really wonderful and cathartic for me to explore what's been happening to me and to document this journey of self-discovery, but also um, to engage with others who are going through similar ordeals. Wonderful, wonderful. Well, I'll turn it over to Annie. Yeah, so how did it all start? So you were living in Paris. I was living in Paris. Um, my boyfriend, Seamus, had just moved in with me. Um, it, you know, I, like a lot of 20-something-year-olds, I was trying to answer 
the questions of who do I want to be? Mm-hmm. What do I want to do with my life? Um, and as I was exploring these questions, um, I started feeling very tired. Um, and at first, I wrote off my exhaustion as, you know, being the cause of staying up too late and mm-hmm. maybe having one too many drinks or being a 22-year-old. Being a 22-year-old, exactly. Um, and as my fatigue started to get more extreme, it became obvious that something was wrong. I couldn't climb a flight of stairs without feeling completely out of breath. Mm-hmm. Um, that was around the time that I watched the movie Love and Other Drugs. Oh, boy. With Anne Hathaway. Yeah. I think <laughs> I started to have this feeling of deja vu, mm-hmm. um, but it wasn't really deja vu. It was more of a premonition, like, uh-oh, I can actually identify with this girl. And yeah. Maybe something like this is going it's to happen It's always Anne Hathaway. It's always Anne Hathaway. Actually, yeah. Annie, I got my first haircut, mm-hmm. and much to my annoyance, everyone has been telling me, that I look like Anne Hathaway. <laughs> You're like a better and much edgier version of Anne Hathaway. Have you dreamed a dream I of ha- time gone by? Oh, God, no. <laughs> um, I think it's something that people like to say to young women when their hair is growing back Wonderful. and they don't know what else to say. Yeah, I was at a dinner party and someone who didn't know what to say, I was still wearing my wig and she just got my hair. I said, yeah, it's starting to go back a little bit. And she's like, well, Anne Hathaway has her hair short. It looks really good. I was like, I got like five months to run Anne Hathaway length. I was like, uh, yeah, not there yet. I'm like a baby. I like baby hair. But anyway, continue. Yeah, so basically I um, went to the emergency room in Paris. I was even hospitalized for a week. And I was released with a diagnosis of burnout syndrome. Um, which struck me as odd, considering I never heard of it. Um, and <laughs> Must it be a sounded, European thing. You're like, is this on WebMD? Right. Uh, <laughs> you know, it sounded like something that celebrities say when they're going to rehab for mm-hmm. drug addiction. So I went back to upstate New York um, to get a second opinion, and that's when I was eventually diagnosed with myelodysplastic syndrome and acute myeloid leukemia. And what kind of went through your head? How did you find out? Were you in a doctor's office? Did you get a phone call? I got a phone call. I was on um, the train from upstate New York to New York City, and I had to turn back. I can say that it was the longest four-hour train ride Mm -hmm. of my life because they wouldn't tell me what they had found. Um, But in some ways, you know, as much as I was shocked, I was relieved. Mm -hmm. Um, it had been months since I had been having these strange symptoms, and I started to think that they were psychosomatic. You know, maybe I was depressed. It was all in your head. Realized yeah. that maybe I was completely crazy, and I was right. making this all up. Um, and it was a relief to find out that something was actually wrong. Um, you know, I may be an old man, but I went through the exact same thing at 21. My dad will nod his head here. You know, everyone was telling me, like, you know, just get a grip. And when I was finally diagnosed with actual thing inside my brain, I was like, thank God it's not me. But wait, it's me. Okay. I feel better now. So after um, this wave of relief, I suddenly had this, oh, shit moment. You know, like, what is about to happen to me? Um, And things moved very quickly. Um, I was scheduled to enter the hospital to begin chemotherapy. And I decided to delay my treatments um, in order to pursue 
fertility preservation mm-hmm. treatment. That was something that was incredibly important. To Which me. we need to pause and recognize yeah. that in in the in the, the the sphere of like progress in recognizing the unique needs of young adults as they triage through diagnosis. We call that like the oh shit week between actual diagnosis and when right. they either cut you open or give you something. Right. Where they you have that narrow window to be educated about fertility rights. That's extraordinary that you were in a situation where that was made available to you. I have to say, however, and I know I'm not the only one who is in this position, as wonderful and as brilliant as my doctors were, no one told me that my treatments were going to make me infertile. Um, I found that out when I was Googling side effects of the chemotherapy I was scheduled to undergo. Oh, so you proactively made it a point. So I found out. And okay, I, I take very, everything back. Okay. Right. <laughs> but they, and, you know, and they explained to me cancer is the emergency. Fertility is always not always an option for people in your situation. Right. And I understood that, but I also told them, you know, this is incredibly important to me. I'm not ready to be a mother now, but I'm mm-hmm. 22 years old, um, and this feels like my lifeline to the future. It's hope. It's everything. Um, and I'd like to take this time, even if it's risky, um, to freeze my eggs. Um, so I'd encourage anyone who's listening to this um, you know, to talk about how important it is to even have that conversation, Absolutely. whether or not it's an option. I just think it's, um, for me, it was, it was very confusing mm-hmm. um, that no one had told me this, and it made me doubt uh, maybe, you know, what other things I, I didn't know about. Um, so I really felt like I started out on shaky footing mm-hmm. um, with my medical team. By the way, a burnout syndrome is characterized by exhaustion, depersonalization, and reduced satisfaction in performance. So basically everyone that lives in Manhattan yeah. has burnout syndrome. Right. Yeah. Every 22-year-old yeah. and everyone who lives yeah, in basically. Yeah. All right, so you went on the chemotherapy. I did. I spent six weeks in isolation. Um, and but you kept writing the whole time. You became like a, a well, generator. This was actually a year before I started writing. Okay, so this was the summer 2011. Right. And, I, and I just want to say that when I was first diagnosed, I, cancer is not something that makes you want to be social and something that makes yeah. you want to hide. Yes. It's something that makes you want to isolate, and that was very much my instinct mm-hmm. in the first few months. I told almost no one other than my close family and friends, um, and I wrote but for myself in a journal, um, and I was stunned when I learned that my chemotherapy not only hadn't worked, but my cancer had become more aggressive, um, at which point I... Uh, enrolled in an experimental clinical trial and also started to consider the possibility that I might not get better. Um, And that's when I realized, you know, maybe cutting everyone off in my life is not the best solution. Mm -hmm. Maybe carrying this diagnosis around like a secret is, you know, actually a disservice to me and to my emotional wellness as I go through this. So that's when I started sharing my experience. Um, And I found that in sharing my experience, uh, I was not only able to help my friends and family better help me, um, but that I was able to deal with some of these emotions that were 
brewing under the surface um, and I started to feel better. Um, mm-hmm. These like dark forces that were threatening to implode inside of me, you know, started to kind of air themselves out. Um, right. And in sharing, I found this new voice, um, the voice of not only a cancer patient, but Sue like and a cancer patient. Mm-hmm. And I started to find myself again. And that's sort of what led me to um, starting my own personal blog and eventually the New York Times blog. Right. Yeah. I When I was in treatment, my friends, long before I learned about stupid cancer, I learned about your blog. And one of my friends sent it to me. When I was, I was like, not working, I was in treatment, and she said, have you seen this yet? And I was like, no, it's amazing. Oh. Yeah, I loved it. I loved reading your column every week. Thank That's you. Awesome. It's great. Awesome, Thanks. awesome. Yeah. And, all right, so we're going to wrap, and you'll be around for the rest of the show, but, you know, where are you now? What's going on now, and, and how is your uh, your future looking? I had a successful bone marrow transplant in April with my younger brother Adam's healthy stem cells, and I'm finally uh, cancer-free. Which is Yay. very exciting. That gets one of these. That, <laughs> that gets a. Uh... <laughs> That's good stuff. I am still doing chemotherapy. I did my started my fifth round of chemotherapy this morning, um, which I'll continue to do for about another seven months in order to prevent relapse. Um, but the only thing I'd like to say before we close this is that I'd encourage all of you. Um, to sign up to be bone marrow donors. Mm -hmm. And I think it's an issue that we often gloss over. Um, And a lot of people think of the bone marrow donor process as something painful. It's really not. In order to sign up, you swab the inside of your cheek Mm -hmm. with what looks like a Q-tip. And this is really an opportunity to save someone's life. And there are a lot of people out there who have the possibility of receiving a cure but simply don't have a donor. Um, no, I mean, it's a big deal. Yeah, we, we, we work with DKMS and the National Marriage Donor Program, and actually I remember that the group Do Something mm-hmm. came up with a campaign called Give a Spit, which was wonderful. <laughs> I love we got that. a lot of college engagement with the swabbings. <laughs> it was really cool. We done it. We did, we should do another show on that. The destigmatization yeah. of bone marrow donors. I know um, and that was a big deal. Robin Roberts also has been doing a huge push. Yes, I've seen her ads in the subway. Yes, that's how I've, I've we seen have her the in the same, subway. We have the same <laughs> disease. Yeah, yeah. Um, and she's done an incredible service. I think to everyone yeah. who suffers from blood cancers. Wonderful to the whole cancer community. Yeah. her and I had the same um, type of breast cancer. So oh. I've seen her at. Uh, uh, I actually saw her at a benefit, and she knew she had the blood disease, but didn't tell anyone. So it was really shocking when I saw her, when she announced it. But huh. yeah, both of you guys have done a great job for awareness and letting people know how easy it is and how much amazing life-saving things they can do by mm-hmm. doing it. Well, I got to tell you, and you know this already, but you have you have become a tremendous inspiration and a whole new catalyst. That's sort of, I'll use the word emboldened. It may sound more fancy or not enough fancy, but you have really given a lot of spark to a lot of people um, who didn't know they could kind of own it the way you did. And the fact that you went through a failure and then a success and, and were really, really tested. And, and again, props to your boyfriend, Seamus, for being an amazing young adult caregiver to you mm-hmm. and sticking with you the whole time. You were dating, what, like six months before? You yeah, were, six yeah, months. So, 
I you wish th- they had an Academy Award <laughs> category for Best Boyfriend because yeah. I would nominate him. Yeah, so kudos to him. You and guys he's are, also done a great job for awareness on Huffington Post. Yes, and he works for Huffington Post, and their Generation Y, W-H-Y, campaign has been extraordinary. We look forward to working with them, and it, this is good. So thank you. Thank you guys so, so much. And I'm sorry it took like eight months to get you on the show, <laughs> but you've been so busy, and it's I'm been wonderful. I'm a little jealous that Seamus got to go on the show before <laughs> me. <laughs> <laughs> That's okay. Okay. Well, anyway, so like as you are, thank you. Thank you. You're sticking yeah. around. All right, so Kenny, I'm going to breeze through this real quick here. Hello, I'm Kent Brockman, and this is I on Cancer. Just the facts, ma'am. Okay, head on over to events.stupidcancer.org, your one-stop shop calendar for all of our social events and educational programs nationwide. Something could be happening in your neck of the woods, and we don't want you missing out. What's going on, Kenny? I guess I'll just name them since we're short on time. We have meetups coming up in San Diego, North New Jersey, here in the city at Sloan Kettering, uh, once again in New Jersey, which is our... Uh, How to Get Busy Living, What's Next Workshop. That's on February 9th. That's an important one to pull out. And then uh, down in Atlanta, February 20th. And then the C4YW Conference in Seattle, February 22nd to the 24th. Stupid Cancer will be there exhibiting. That's a lot of stuff. That's good. It's good stuff. Okay, folks, the OMG Cancer Summit is going strong. We got over 175 registrations, uh, pushing up to about 500 by the end of the spring. Uh, April 25th through 28th in Las Vegas at the Palms Casino. Visit omg2015.org and learn more about the Players Club, which is an exciting way to earn travel reimbursement by fundraising. omg2013.org. All right, Matt, the Stupid Cancer Store now has around 20 awesome products for sale from pens, pins, stickers, and lanyards, T-shirts, you name it. Be proud. Wear Stupid Cancer, stupidcancerstore.org. And finally, the Stupid Cancer Forums have over 4,500 active members. This is your premier online community. To connect with survivors, patients, parents, and caregivers just like you, visit stupidcancerforums.org. And, and, that, and that is your Stupid, stupid cancer, cancer News. All right. I'm really excited. This is a great tie-in to our opening segment. Uh, I have the privilege of meeting... Uh, Sandra, and I'm excited to just have this topic. It's very near and dear to my heart. So, all right, let's introduce, first of all, Sarah Watson is a writer and co-executive producer of the critically acclaimed NBC drama Parenthood. Her credits include The Middleman, The Unusuals, Lipstick Jungle, and Standoff, among other series. And Sandra DeCastro Buffington is the director of Hollywood Health and Society, a program of the USC Annenberg Norman Lear Center that leverages the power of the entertainment industry to improve the health of people worldwide. Please welcome to the Stupid Cancer Show, Sarah Watson and Sandra DeCastro Buffington. Ladies. Welcome. Hi, Matt. Hi, Annie. Thank you for having us. Of course. Hi, Sarah. <laughs> Hi. <laughs> We are so excited to have you on the show. As I said, this is a, a, an interest very near and dear to my heart. The, the authenticity on television and in film of when people go through ailments. Uh, again, as someone who has been through it, and Annie has been through it, and we, we have a lot of people who have been through it, it's so refreshing to just know that there are people who've got our back <laughs> when it comes to watching TV and seeing something that you know could actually happen. So... Uh, Sandra, we'll start with you. I mean, we've met. You're wonderful. I love what you do. Um, I just you. love to hear more about how you got started and where this all came from because it, it's just so wonderful. Well, Hollywood Health and Society has been around for 11 years, and 
We actually got started by the um, Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. And we're at a bridge between the entertainment industry and health experts and survivors of conditions. And so we connect writers and producers from Hollywood, and actually we work in Bollywood and Nollywood in India and Nigeria as well, to inspire writers to write about health topics, and when they do it, to write about them accurately, just as you were saying. So I think writers, well, we'll ask Sarah, but um, most of the writers we ask um, about what their goal is will tell us they want to tell the most compelling story they can, that they don't see themselves as health educators. That's not what their work's about. But they know that we can help them make their stories more compelling by making them realistic and making them accurate when it comes to health content. So that's what we do. And and just, just uh, to capture it all, if it's possible, has was it very well received? What was the reception in the writer's world that you wanted to come and you know, explain that it's how critical it is to actually get it right. Well, you know, we actually don't um, teach the writers anything. I mean, the writers, <laughs> what we do is, you know, we recognize that the writers are artists. They're really the master storytellers of our time. And their voice is bigger and more important, especially with popular culture, than any other voice. And so we really have a lot of respect for them. And, in fact, they can tell our stories better than we can. So what we offer up are real stories of real people. We never pitch a storyline. We only pitch real stories like yours, Matt, and yours, Annie. People have been through something, a huge challenge, and come out of it the other side. And then we also bring in innovations in health and in diagnosis and treatment and in prevention and and we connect them to sort of the edgy stories. And they take it from there. They spin these stories into something amazing and creative that transports the viewers into a world that they might never discover on their own. And through our research, which I can talk about later, you know, we know how much viewers are learning. And there is nothing more powerful than a well-told story to transport viewers and actually teach them something in the process. Very well said. So basically, you, you, you provide a lens of opportunity to artists, and I guess it's just the balance between artistic license and what they're looking to get out of the, the, the script or the entertainment value or the dramatic value of the, the end product versus making sure that if they choose to go that route, here's a wealth of information that could really help you. Exactly. And you know, a lot of times they'll call us and say, Okay, so you you inspired us to write a story about prostate cancer, but you know, can you take us to a location where we can actually see treatment going on? Or, you know, what would a dialogue be like in, you know, in a room where people are getting chemotherapy and, and maybe they're just meeting each other for the first time? And, you know, they're really they often are concerned about making it realistic. So that that's where we come in. Wonderful. So I guess let's let's turn it over to Sarah. Uh, we're thrilled to have you. We're huge fans of the show. And uh, I'd love to learn more about, you know, how uh, you got to learn about uh, Sandra's work with Hollywood Health and Society and how it has played a role in your artistic life. Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me on the show. It's, I'm, it's really exciting to be on here. And I will just say I was interested in listening to Sandra talk from, from her end because what it really is from our end is we have all these stories and all these emotions that we want to tell. 
and then we get to the facts, and we're writing, you know, doctor scenes, and it keeps us from, like, literally, we've writ- I've written doctor scenes where I've turned in the first draft of a script, and it's just blah, 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 doctor jargon here, <laughs> you know. And then we've had other days where we were trying to figure out, we were doing a storyline for Christina, played by Monica Potter on the show, where she is, we wanted her to get rapidly sick over the weekend. Um, she's in the middle of chemo for her um breast cancer treatment and you know what would that look like and what would that be and we this was before sort of hollywood health and society had entered our lives we ended up conference calling from the writer's room one of the writers um his college roommate was a doctor you know and so it's sort of like it it keeps us from you know and he was i think like a pediatrician or something he's like i don't know and so what hollywood health and society does is they just steer us to the right people to answer all the right questions because, you know, we tell t- stories two ways. Sometimes we'll have the emotional story first, and we'll want to know how to make it medically accurate. And then other times we'll have a story that we start with the medical side, and then we need to emotionally find out what the story is. And so Hollywood Health and Society just creates a great bridge for us. Thank you, Sarah. <laughs> <laughs> You're hired. Yeah. And actually, on, on Sarah, I would, you know, Sarah, I would love to have you, you know, share about, um, that story you created that we showed at our workshop in, in Puerto Rico because it's so beautiful and compelling. And, you know, we just, um, Sarah created the storyline on breast cancer in one of her characters, Christina, and um, Parenthood asked us to uh, put together a blog post on breast cancer for the Parenthood website. So we contacted breast cancer experts at the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention, and they wrote a beautiful blog that's also a commentary on the narrative in the story, and that was posted on the show's site. And the, the show is so popular and so well done. I mean, they have a huge following that they generate this amazing dialogue with viewers every week through these blog postings. And so it's a way of giving viewers more accurate information about the storylines that they tell. But, Sarah, can you tell that story and how it yeah, came about? Well, I would, I would, I wish I could take personal credit for introducing um, the Christina's cancer storyline, but that was, you know, that was really the entire writers' room. And the way the storyline came about on our show is um, a couple weeks before we come back to to create season to really start on season four, we came back a few weeks early to just talk about sort of generally where we wanted to take these characters. And Jason Kadams, the creator of Parenthood, his wife Kathy. Um, battled breast cancer and is now doing fantastic but between seasons one and two that was something that was personally going on in Jason's life and that he just couldn't stop thinking about it and all these stories that he'd collected and these experiences that he'd had were just sort of something that he had on his mind and so he brought that into the writer's room and sort of floated the idea not knowing whether that was the right decision to take with her character or not. He just wanted to get our feedback on it. Because obviously, you know, we're dealing with a lot of heavy storylines on Parenthood already. You know, did we really want to introduce cancer? And um, so he said, let's not, you know, let's not make any rash decisions. Let's take a couple of days, kick the cancer ball around, you know, see what we think. And we all started talking, and just the personal stories that came about um, another writer on our show, his wife had uterine cancer. Another writer on his sh- on our show, his sister died of cancer, and that's actually was the impetus for him to leave the law and move to Los Angeles and become a writer. And as we're all sort of telling these personal stories, 
it just came about that not only was this story something that we wanted to tell, it was something that we needed to tell. It was just something we all had in us, and so that's really where where the cancer storyline came out of. You know, we, we live in an age where the audience is probably more a little more hypersensitive than they used to be because of mass communications and the internet and social media. That there's probably a much thicker, you know, lens that that viewers have on these types of broadcasts these days that they didn't used to have. So. I would imagine, you know, having, you know, authenticity or accuracy sort of matching the human experience makes for much better, you know, reviews and, and, and ratings and whatnot. Yeah, I would hope so. I mean, it's just been amazing to me how many people have resonated, this storyline has resonated with them. Like, I was I was telling Sandra when we were in Puerto Rico together that, you know, on every other show I've ever worked on, I never read the comments after episodes because, <laughs> I mean, they're just, people love to come to the Internet and be cruel. And mm-hmm. it's just when you read the comments on Parenthood, of course there's still the comments of, you know, uh, about our love stories and how we, we are making all the wrong decisions. But overwhelmingly, <laughs> I would say 90% of the comments are just these, oh, my God, they're telling my story, or oh, my God, my my sister went through this. Oh, it feels so comforting to see my story on TV. And and then to see people start to talk back and forth in our comment sections about similar experiences they've had, it's just, I mean, I have to say as a writer who's spent years <laughs> trying to shut all the, the criticism and the noise out, it's just been amazing to be a part of something that has resonated with so many people on such an incredibly deep level. Well, I had breast cancer myself, and you will not have any criticism from me because I have to say you guys got it right to Thank the point you. that it was scary for me. Thank you. And that it was uh, – sometimes it was really hard to watch having gone, having gone through this experience. Sometimes it's like looking in a mirror, and some of the scenes where she doesn't say certain things, you guys just play music over it, where – you know, she shows her in the mammogram, and then they, you guys show her in the doctor's office, and you just see her reaction. You don't hear, no one says anything, you just, you see her reaction. And, you know, I had the same reaction, but laying on a table with oh, wow. no shirt on, just like a hospital gown. And, uh, you know, it's it's hard to watch from the outside looking in, but it's so good how you guys got it so right. Because one of the you know, I read some of the, doing research for the show, one of the criticisms I read that you guys got was, let me guess you're going to give her breast cancer, just because people do feel like the storyline's yeah. played out. Yeah. And you know what? It's very difficult to get it right, because people, you know, maybe dismiss it, because, but people shouldn't, because it's unfortunately extremely common, and so many women go through it, and, I, you know, I went through it at 30 years old, and, you know, uh, Christina is also young. She has an infant. And a lot of people can relate to that. I've talked to a lot of my friends, um, other breast cancer survivor friends, and they all said that, you know, they can't wait till every week's episode to see how you, you know, which scenario is going to play out. Is it going to be the scenario of the surgery of, you know, the when she got really sick and she was in the hospital, um, the video she made for her children, it's 
Amazing. And it was, oh, my God, I, I had, like, an ugly cry while watching that. <laughs> like, you talk about, like, ugly cry. Where well, you just... I will tell you, we've had ugly cries writing it, and I'm not even mm-hmm. kidding. Like, I was writing a scene. I was sitting in a coffee shop working on a scene and broke down. So it's, I mean, this has been a really tough storyline to tell, but I will say, and it's really nice to hear from you that you feel like we're getting it right and I will tell you the reason we're getting it right is because these stories are all real. Mm-hmm. I wish we, I could say we were so creative to come up with all these amazing stories, but unfortunately they're just stories that people in the room have been through. And Jason has been incredibly generous letting us steal from his life. And, you know, I saw Kathy at a Christmas party not too long ago, and just I asked her what it's been like sort of, you know, watching her experiences play out on TV and, she had a little bit similar to what you said. It's hard. There's ugly cry times, but there's also sort of a comfort in seeing it. You know, but when you get buy-in from the patient community, I mean, and, and not even patient, just human beings who can resonate, when you get that buy-in, you know you did something right. It goes beyond, you know, just the show. Yeah. And it feels good. Can I share some of these impact results, you guys? Because not only, I mean, parenthood is amazing. I mean, that we're all transported into that story because they're such incredible writers. Sarah is an amazing writer. Sarah and Jason and Bridget, these other people. It's one of the most extraordinary shows we have on air today. And so, but here's the thing that our our social science research shows because we Hollywood Health Society does a lot of um, measuring. We do a pretest before story airs, and we do a post test. And while we haven't evaluated parenthood, we've evaluated a lot of other cancer storylines we've worked on. And one of them is um, was on 90210. I don't know if you saw that. It was about the BRCA gene and cancer in young people. And as you all know very well, there, there aren't that many stories about cancer in young people. It's either little kids or it's older adults. And Correct. Mm-hmm. What we found, and we've actually, I've got in front of me one, two, three, four, five studies we've done on the impact of cancer storylines on TV on viewers. And over and over and over, what they show is that the more engrossed a viewer is in the story, the more likely they are to change attitudes, knowledge, and behavior. And so, you know, with the BRCA gene, we were looking at, did you learn anything? Did you schedule a doctor's appointment? Did you recommend to somebody you know that they schedule a doctor's appointment? And there are huge increases in the number in the knowledge gained from these TV shows and also in the the, the, the percentage of viewers that actually signed up for or called in to make doctor's appointments to get tested. And the, the thing about the engrossment is that when you go to a doctor's office and you get regular patient education, it's generally very dry, and you get talked at. In a TV storyline, it really touches our hearts and engages us in a way that we lose track of time, we forget our surroundings, we come to care deeply about those char- those characters as if they're family and friends, and we don't want the story to end. We want to see what happens next. That's the definition of transportation or being transported into a story. That is the single most powerful thing we can do to get someone to learn something about cancer is to transport them into a compelling story with accurate content. Much bigger knowledge gains than doctor's office being talked at. Right. So parenthood, you're doing, and Sarah, you're doing an incredible service to not just the United States, but these shows 
get um, aired in over 100 countries around the world. So you're doing a service to the globe, to humanity. Well, thank you. No pressure. Yeah. No pressure. <laughs> One thing that is really important that you guys show is age. She's so young on the yeah. show. I don't I don't know her exact age, but early 40s. And oh, we don't know. Yeah, <laughs> we'll, it's we'll okay. Keep, a woman doesn't admit her age. Yeah, right. it's okay. She's definitely, she's a young, she has an infant. She's a young mom. Yeah. You show her, you know, getting a mammogram. This is what I love about the storyline is it's not grandma getting breast cancer. It is, it's yeah. a mom and she has an infant. And, you know, some of the scenes that were so, like, raw to watch where she was in her uh is, is it Nora the little yeah, baby Nora, yeah. in Nora's room just holding oh. her and just seeing her kind of her eyes get misty it's it and then her husband walks in you know and Adam walks in the room just watching them play together and so many young women who have breast cancer can relate to that and that's a lot of the feedback I have it's how hard it is to be a mom with breast cancer, especially the scenes where, you know, she always jokes that she's type A and she's controlling and, you know, trying to juggle it all with, you know, she, and oh, another um, thing people should know is her character, her son has Asperger's and uh, you guys have gotten a lot of acclaim for yeah. portraying that so accurately. Um, so she has, a, you know, a daughter just went away to college across the country. She has an infant and she has a son with Asperger's. And, you know, that's the, that is the struggle a lot of women who have any type of cancer are dealing with and trying to maintain a household and keep the husband happy and maintain a marriage. And it's just been so amazing to see her juggle it all and how she juggles it all and the scenes where she is feeling sick and getting sick in front of her family and, you know, not to give too much about the show away, but one of my other favorite things was when her her uh, very serious husband goes and scores some pot because she wasn't <laughs> yes. feeling well. But that's all so that's just that's what happens. Yeah, I did research on that last week. So. <laughs> but so much yeah. of the feedback I've got, you know, I'm not a parent. I I don't have the responsibilities of a parent while I was dealing with treatment. I only had to worry about getting better for myself. But I've heard from so many young moms who have gone through this that they are so happy you guys have shown how it is to be a mother going through treatment and having young children and setting, you know, I've heard of other people contemplating doing the videos, especially some people who are diagnosed with cancer were young children. One of their biggest fears is that their children won't remember them. Yeah. And that's why they make those, you know, video diaries as a way to communicate with their children whether they're here or not and you know it's just it was just amazing i loved every i've loved every episode i can't wait to see where you guys take it next you know oh, the scene where, where she you know her hair falls out in front of her friends and also showing that she does try to have a normal life is also really important too because one of the misconceptions is that you're laid in bed all the time sometimes yeah. you just want to be a normal person and you want to have dinner with your friends and go out and go dancing until you're like, I need to be put in bed right now. Yeah. <laughs> and that's yeah, the, yeah. That was a story we really wanted to tell. Just that she was so sick of it, and so sick of having cancer, and so sick of being sick, and you know, trying to get a break from it, and then feeling sick again. You know, that was just a really important story for us to tell. 
Sarah, was this the first time you had written a, a cancer story in your writings in the past? Yes, definitely. How did that affect you? It, um, it's it scared me a lot. I'll be totally honest. I also told Sandra in Puerto Rico about two weeks into breaking these stories. I called up. I'm 36 years old, and you know you're not you're. It's not recommended that you get a mammogram until you're 40. I called up my doctor. I was like, "Can we speed that up?" You know? <laughs> and but also just as we started talking, and as I've talked to friends, there's not a single person I know who does not have cancer in their life in some way, either a friend or a family member. Not a single person, and that's that's very scary. And just the intensity of how much your life can change in a day. And that's what happened for Jason Kadams. He was mm-hmm. he was here at the office, you know, going about his day, juggling, running two shows, uh, fielding phone calls. And then his wife called and said, I need you to come pick me up. And she had just had her mammogram and just received the news. And just how quickly your life can change. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think that's something I think a lo- about a lot more now. And it also, I will say as a writing staff on Parenthood, we are one of the most, I will say, balanced, family-oriented staffs in town. There's just this this hyperactivity. There tends to be in writers' rooms, and this we have to work all the time. And we definitely keep everything in perspective. We're like, hey, this is just TV. You know, it gives you a lot of perspective. Well, you know, I just, I just celebrated 17 years cancer-free. I was diagnosed. Congratulations! Thank Congratulations! You. That's With amazing. A, yeah, I, I was I was a college senior. I had brain cancer, so uh, wow. all, all all that's been, you know, happily wiped away. Um, but I, I, you know, I grew up. My mother actually has a master's in film, and I grew up. My brother and I, my my dad, we grew up like loving film and television, and you know, just when I got sick, it was 1996, and everything was in terms of endearment. <laughs> and, 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 and which is not what it is, and it's still not that. So the idea of changing, not just changing public perception about what it's like to have cancer, but to destigmatize it in a way that's just so meaningful and influence viewership behavior on a health level is fascinating stuff. So that's just wonderful. I, I have to talk about just really quickly that Will Riser, who wrote the film 5050 oh, 50, 50, right. last summer. He actually came to keynote at our annual patient conference in Las Vegas uh, last April, and you know he he actually went through cancer, and he wrote a script so authentic he had to deauthenticate it because it wasn't going to work in the <laughs> film. So, yeah. But he deauthenticated it enough to the point where it was one of the most resonant, true to life stories. I mean, it was fictionalized yeah. to that extent. But it gave sort of like the notion of like cancer not in old people. You know, it gave us a voice. It gave the country an awareness that it doesn't just happen to people over 70 years old. It happens to regular normal people who are just trying to live their life and raise their kids. And they do the best that they can. And when it comes along, there's nothing you can really do except try to, you know, get busy living. Right. So, again, it, this goes into, I mean, a culturally anthropo- anthropologic wonk that I am. <laughs> it, you really are, like you said, like Sandra said, you're changing just the very fact that this exists on TV and you're getting great ratings and it's having influence. It's just a transformation from where life was in 1996. Yeah. Well, that's great. And I will say it's such an honor to be a part of this show. I mean, to be on Parenthood, it's just it's been incredible. So it's very nice of you to say. And I want to thank Matt before we jump off, because Matt actually, when he was in Los Angeles, he 
gave us some of his time. And, you know, we take um, survivors, we take experts um, right into the writers' rooms. And I'm not going to say which show because there hasn't been a storyline yet, but we asked him to serve as our expert, and we took him right into the writers' rooms to brief some of the writers of, of one of the competing top shows in Hollywood <laughs> and, and inspire them. And we do this to, to really inspire them to write about topics that we all care about. And cancer is one of the top topics. So he served as our expert, and they were fa- they were taking notes fast and furiously. They wrote down everything he said. Because <laughs> cool. he, Matt, you have an amazing, inspiring story. And, you know, to have a young person, you know, develop cancer out of the blue and have a huge life change as a result and, you know, live through that. And as you said, it's been 17 years. You know, Matt had an incredible story that these writers and producers had never heard before. And that's how we inspire them. So thank you, Matt. And I, I want to be played by either uh, Jason Sudeikis, uh, <laughs> Jason Bateman, or John Favreau or Seth Rogen, Okay. That's a good point. You're giving us a lot to work with. All right, fantastic. So really, really quickly before we go, I really have to mention, Sandra, that you just launched a climate change um, initiative through Hollywood Health and Society. Can we yeah. just assume that that's to keep the science authentic in writing as well? Exactly, and we're really interested in the health impacts of climate change. How is changing climate affecting our health? And we know there's an increase in asthma among young children in the inner cities due to global warming. We know there are all kinds of um, respiratory illnesses. And there are people who are doing research on whether some of the uh, changes in the environment are impacting cancer incidents. So there's a, that's the kind of thing we're interested in. So if you have any stories or you come across anything linking cancer to um, health outcomes, we'd love to know about it. Or not yes. cancer, sorry, climate change. Well, so we season, season five on parenthood, climate yeah. change. <laughs> <laughs> You'll have Al Gore do a walk Yes, exactly. Yeah, exactly. No, there, yeah, there's an organization called saferchemicals.org that we partner with in D.C. around that. So I will definitely make connections over email, but that's wonderful. Fantastic. Well, thank you guys so much. Sarah Watson thank and Sandra Castro Buffington. You guys are awesome. Keep up the great work, and good luck with everything. Thank you. Thanks you so much. Thank you. Okay. Thank okay. you so much. Bye-bye. Bye. Okay. And I, everyone knows, uh, Kenny knows the story. I don't think um, Annie knows the story. But I, uh, I was actually a script advisor on a Lifetime TV show back in 2007. When we, when we launched the Stupid Cancer Show, it was really strange because I did a press release, not knowing what one was, and I actually spent like 800 bucks to get on the wire, <laughs> which is ludicrous. Yeah. But it got into the hands of, like, the Hollywood Reporter, and a, a, this Emmy-winning director um, reached out to me and said, I want to come on your show with my, my writer and my one of my actors. And uh, they were producing a show for Lifetime called Side Order of Life. And it was, like, Jason Priestley and Marissa Coughlin and, and I mean, just a, a really, like, really good list of talent. The show was kind of like Alan McBeal in an ad agency, so like snarky, funny, sexy, funny. And the main, the secondary character was a young Hispanic woman living with a brain tumor. So which we, you know nothing about. Which I know nothing about. As a young Hispanic woman, I know nothing about that. <laughs> and we had just finished, in June of 2007, was the very first Stupid Cancer Ungala. It was like a happy hour 
at Taj with like 200 people, and it was wonderful. And I had actually sent them photos of that event. I sent this director uh, and producer photos of the event. She said, we would like this character to go to a scene just like this. Would you write a script scene for us where this character is going to your happy hour? So I wrote the scene, true to life. I literally just like wrote exactly what happened that, that night. And they sent the script back to me, and they said, this is wonderful, we're going to go with it. And they wrote someone into the scene called Matthew. And I said, well, this is great. Who's going to play me? And they said, you are. (laughs) I said, no, I'm not. But after, like, some spiritual guidance, I actually went out to Los Angeles in August of 2007, and I shot live on a set for, like, 12 hours straight on location at this bar, and they hired all these extras who happened to be bald. And actually, one of them was actually a cancer survivor. And we, we just shot the scene. And they produced it. And it was part of the show. And it was so wonderful. And it was like the very first time that it was not a terms of endearment moment for a young person on television. And Lifetime, to, to this day, it's the most highly rated Lifetime TV show on their blogs. Hmm. And it was not renewed for a second season because they're Lifetime. <laughs> but and it still has not come out on DVD. It's like the most requested show on Lifetime that's never come out on DVD. But anyway, they wait until you get rich and famous. Yeah, until I yeah, if I can afford <laughs> to, to fund it exactly. <laughs> but I got to tell you, that was really exciting to be able to do that back then. So to see this progress, you know, and uh, so like I'm sorry to get to chime in. They they were obviously very exuberant about what they were talking about. But as you know, as someone who's sort of new to the cancer world, you know. What's your take on this? It's not dead and dying people who are screaming and crying in the hospitals. Are we being portrayed realistically? I think more and more. Um, and what's amazing about the Internet and WordPress and Facebook is that you see more and more young people who are coming out of the cancer closet. Right. Um, it's not something to be ashamed of. And, in fact, um, I think by going public with these diagnoses and talking about um, what we're all going through, we not only have the opportunity to raise awareness, but to also make new friends. Mm -hmm. Um, Mm -hmm. And that's something that's been really exciting and a revelation for me. Because I don't think these story arcs would would have worked like even five years ago. I think it really just had to take this amount of time for the country to sort of get desensitized to it where it's okay. Totally. And they make fun of it on Family Guy and The Simpsons. I mean, Mm -hmm. just everywhere now. And you see young actresses like Kate Hudson and Dakota Fanning playing cancer patients. Right. You know, the main protagonists in these Mm -hmm. dramas. And Mm -hmm. I think that's something that's very new. Yeah. Um, And even, like, with Monica Potter, I mean, the woman cannot be more amazingly beautiful. Right. And show that, like, she's young and she's beautiful and she has a baby and the universe does not care. Right. Right. Exactly. No, I mean, I, I just, you know, you work in the media now, and you're you're a media personality, and and just the idea that authenticity is so key, and viewers are so captious to make sure that it it, it resonates with them. And there was, an, I wouldn't bring it up with them, but I brought it up in the past that there was an episode on Grey's Anatomy where Izzy had melanoma, mm-hmm. and she didn't lose her hair. And not being someone in the medical world. I remember there was an outcry, even from the American Cancer Society, that it was unrealistic for that to happen and sent the wrong message to the viewers. And I I don't follow the the arc after that, but it was just like you could really 
mess things up if you tamper with it the wrong way. And that's something that's been very important to me in my New York Times column, Life Interrupted, is to really um, create an unvarnished and a real and raw, real-time account of what it's like to be young and living with cancer. I think oftentimes there's this emphasis to, you know, be positive and to be a survivor and to, right? But cancer isn't always a life-changing, life-rewarding experience. Sometimes it really sucks. And I think it's important to portray both aspects um, of of living with a life-threatening illness because otherwise it's not really relatable and it's not really true or honest. Mm -hmm. Right. Yeah, I remember when on Sex and the City, back in the day, they gave Samantha breast cancer, and they made her seem like it was a little too easy. They definitely got a lot of the storyline right. It was right. cancer couture. It definitely was. She had, like, Hermes scarves in her head, and I was like, right. yeah, right, I wish. And um, she was definitely, like, going out and, like, having cocktails and... They showed some of the aspects they showed. I was like, give me a break. Mm-hmm. Like, the last thing I want to do is, like, be on a red carpet and be in a fancy dress. But they got a lot. They did get some aspects of it right. Um, you know, the horrifying aspect of, like, getting a wig and, you know, going to chemo and, I don't know, dating they, and... Yeah. Right, right. And the hot flashes. I, I have to admit, and everyone's probably going to hate me, I didn't have hot flashes. And I'm like... I thought that there was something wrong with me because I wasn't. I know. Get a hot flash. I know. I feel like I'm having one right now. But I did not get hot flashes in chemo. My doctor just said, you're very lucky. I had plenty of other side effects, so don't worry. But, uh, yeah, they showed her getting some pretty brutal hot flashes, and that was kind of, it was kind of funny. But, anyway. Well, that that's the whole point of the show. The yeah. show is to emphasize the fact that, that the media cares about authenticity. It's not necessarily about just the dramatic impact because the crowd's not going to buy into it. And the fact that they're actually affecting viewer behavior mm-hmm. to be proactive is extraordinary. I couldn't, I, you know, I have, I don't watch the new now to I know. I'm still stuck in like Brendan and Kelly days. <laughs> Brenda. So is my wife, yeah. Yeah, so I didn't know they did the BRCA and I have the BRCA mutation, which is what puts the, uh, young women at risk for uh, ovarian. Breast, ovarian and breast cancer. Yeah. Um, the ovarian risk is not as high. Breast cancer, my risk was 87%. Yeah. So people who test positive, um, you're in pretty bad situation. Uh, so anyway. No pressure. Yeah, right. exactly. <laughs> it's like you have an 87% chance of getting cancer. Right. But I found that out while I was in my third week of chemo. But, uh, yeah, it's ama- I didn't even see it. I need to find it because I want to see how they portrayed it. It's amazing that they showed that. I mean, it's so it's so it's important. Spe- it's important and it's so specific. But it sends a good message. It does send a good message because it reminds people to look out for your health and get tested and if you need to get tested and blah blah blah. Anyway. All right. Well, let's end the show on that note. What a wonderful way to start season twelve with our two hundred and fiftieth broadcast. It was great. And uh, we are looking forward to heading over to our after party at uh, Chelsea, Chelsea Manor, Manor nine thirty to eleven thirty, twelve o'clock ish going to be very exciting. What you say, 68 people registered? Yes. And hopefully we'll have a good turnout. Plus um, yeah. plus Facebook and Twitter. And right. I'm, I'm bringing some friends. Yay. Fantastic. It'll be a good turnout. We'll have a great time. All right, folks, thanks tonight, and it is uh, time for our closing sequence. Prepare to activate. Uh, I hear there's rumors on the uh, Internet. Have you ever seen a grown man naked? And so, to all of you, a fond farewell. 
Ray, I'm helping. You are a meathead. Oh, Magoo, you've done it again. That was so terrible, I think you gave me cancer. Okay, folks, that's our show, our 250th broadcast. We hope you had as much fun as we did poking a stick of stupid cancer. And to thank our guests, Selecta Jouad, Sandra DeCastro Buffington, and Sarah Watson. And tune in next week. Join us next Monday live at 8 p.m. Eastern as we welcome the innovators at Cure Launcher, Steve Goldner, Dave Fuhr, and Dr. Max Wicha, the director of the University of Michigan Cancer Center, as well as nutrition expert Susan Bratton, CEO of Meals to Heal, which provides fresh meals customized to specific needs delivered right to your door. All right, folks, if you've missed any of our past shows, download them all for free on iTunes at itunes.stupidcancer.org or check out all of the archives at stupidcancershow.org. Remember, folks, if it ain't stupid, it ain't cancer. Live from the chemo deck on behalf of this Kenny Kane, Andy Goodman, uh, my whole team, Maureen Sweet, and uh, Allie Ward, that's the whole team, I guess, right? <laughs> Have a great week, and we'll see you back here next Monday live at 8 p.m. Good night, folks. Because not every cancer survivor is over 60.